Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word that is before us. We thank you for the opportunity to consider how fearsome and sovereign and righteous and merciful you are. And Lord, I pray that as we experience you in your word, you would cause our souls to be still. Lord, I pray that you would mercifully not harden anyone here today. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to fear you. And Lord, we pray that in all of the ways that you have revealed yourself by means of wonders and signs, we pray that you would cause us to know you. Make us want to serve you, we pray, for your glory and for our everlasting joy. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open with me this morning to Exodus chapter 7, and we will be looking at the first nine plagues this morning. So we'll be looking at Exodus chapters 7 through 11. And in the midst of all of this detail, um, I have really three main admonitions, exhortations for you, and they are what I have just prayed. Number one, that we would fear God. Number two, that we would know God. And number three, that we would serve God. Fear God, know God, serve God. If you're taking notes, those, there's your outline for this sermon. Uh, I want to draw your attention as we, as we begin to the way that this whole passage is bracketed by statements that are made in Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, and then in chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. So if you look at Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, the Lord says to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then he goes on to describe the great acts of judgment that he's going to do to bring Israel out. And then if you look over at 11, 9, and 10, there we read, The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So those two statements about Pharaoh not listening, about the Lord hardening his heart, those two statements in 7, 3, and 4, and 11, 9, and 10 bracket this whole unit of text that deals with these nine plagues. In order to understand what's going on in these plagues, I want to back up for just a moment and remind you of what we've seen to this point in the book of Exodus. So you might remember that in Exodus chapter 1, the Pharaoh set himself steadfastly against the purpose of God. God's purpose, Genesis 1.28, was for uh, his people to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
And as they're doing that in Exodus 1, Pharaoh sets out to prevent it. He wants to keep the people from being fruitful and multiplying. And so he first gives this command. Well, he first lays harsh labor upon them and he enslaves them. And then he gives a command to the midwives and tells the midwives to put the male children to death. They refuse to do that. And then he wants the male children thrown into the Nile. And in the midst of this, it's, it's very interesting in light of what we're going to see today, in light of uh, the fact that we've just come through the Christmas season, in the midst of the, the attempt to murder all the male children of Israel, there at the end of Exodus chapter 1, Moses is born. And the birth of this child seems to signal that God is at work. His, his parents see that he's a beautiful child, and by faith, they seem to perceive that God is keeping his promises and raising up a seed who will deliver Israel. And, you know, in, earlier in the service, we read Isaiah chapter 7, and Isaiah the prophet goes to the king with a hard heart, and he goes to him at a, at a, at a place of water, and he offers him signs. And that is significant, I think, because in the midst of that, that uh, context in Isaiah 7, he's going to prophesy that the virgin is going to conceive and bear a child, a deliverer. And uh, we're going to see here in Exodus 7 through 11 that Moses repeatedly goes to Pharaoh at the water offering him signs. So I think that these themes that we're seeing, uh, the hard-hearted king being confronted by the prophet at the water, uh, being, being offered signs, uh, what we're seeing here in Exodus is building toward what Isaiah will prophesy and what will eventually be fulfilled when the Lord Jesus comes. Well, as we continue uh, making our way, we, we can see, can't we, that Pharaoh is already a rebel. He, he's trying to murder the male children of Israel. And when, when that doesn't work and the Lord has raised up Moses, he actually wants to murder Moses as well. Moses escapes and he comes out to Mount Sinai where uh, the Lord tells Moses, if you look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, the Lord tells Moses about what we're about to read about in Exodus 7 through 11. Chapter 7 through 11, Exodus 3, 19. I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And then in the next two verses there in Exodus 3, um, the Lord tells Moses about how Israel is going to plunder Egypt and we'll actually see them uh, set up to do that in Exodus chapter 11 after after the plagues have fallen upon Egypt. And then the drama really begins to get going in Exodus 5 when Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, and they said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh? Pharaoh has no regard for the Lord. He has no fear for Yahweh. He refuses to recognize Yahweh. And then down in verse 9, he says, Let heavier work be laid on the men, the men of Israel, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Namely, that they're coming out of Egypt. Or that they exist to serve the Lord. 
And then in Exodus chapter 6, it is as though the Lord says, Who is Yahweh? I am Yahweh. And I do not speak lying words. And so the Lord insists in Exodus 6, 1 through 9, that he is telling the truth, that he has told the truth to Abraham, and that these promises that he made, he will keep. Then there's that genealogy that we looked at in the rest of of Exodus chapter 6, which uh, really highlights Moses and Aaron. And then we come to chapter 7, and uh, I've already noted the way that these statements about Pharaoh not listening and about the Lord multiplying signs and wonders here in 7, 3, and 4, and 11, 9, and 10 bracket this whole unit of text. What we're going to see here as we look at the 10 plagues is that the Lord is multiplying wonders against Egypt. That's what you see there in chapter 7, verse 3. I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. So as we, as we move our, 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 our way through here, I first want to draw attention to all the statements that indicate that the Lord is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And, and I, I want to I draw your attention to all these because I think that, that more than anything else in the Bible, looking these kinds of things full in the face, looking God's sovereignty over Pharaoh's heart, looking that full in the face, I hope and pray, will produce in us a fear of God, a, a strong sense that we live at the mercy of God. So we're just going to work through these, and as we work through them, it's, it's a little bit... Um, it, the English translations have chosen to translate all of these different expressions the same way, but there are actually three different expressions that are used to describe what happens here. One of the expressions, the verb used, means to make strong, and as we go through, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight which different word is used. One of the expressions is to make strong. And I think the idea when it says the Lord made Pharaoh's heart strong, that's, for instance, what you have in Exodus chapter 4, 21, where the Lord says, I will literally make his heart strong so that he will not let the people go. What this indicates is that, as we've seen, it's already Pharaoh's intention not to let the people go. He has no intention. He doesn't want to let the people go. And so what the Lord is doing is strengthening him in that resolved. And then in 7.3, here, it, you, you could very literally render it, I will make Pharaoh's heart hard. I will harden his heart. And this seems to communicate the same idea that Pharaoh's heart is being made strong or made hard in his own purposes. And then again in 7.13, we read here, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and, and there again it's made strong. Uh, but then it, it, notice how 7.13 says he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And I think that's pointing back to uh, that statement in 4.21 and 7.3 that the Lord is going to do this. And then in 7.14, and this is, this is an interesting instance because you'll remember earlier in the, in the narrative, the Lord, or Pharaoh had said in chapter 5, verse 9, let heavier work be laid upon the men. And now this word heavy is used with reference to Pharaoh's heart in 714. 
the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart, you could translate this, Pharaoh's heart is heavy. He refuses to let the people go. And so we, we, we get a little bit of an idea of what exactly the Lord is doing. He's strengthening Pharaoh in his resolve, making him hard in it. And that is, that it's as though Pharaoh is being weighed down with his own commitments and desires. You could think of Paul speaking of how those who refuse to acknowledge him as God or give thanks to him in Romans 1, they are given over to their own desires. That's exactly what is happening with Pharaoh here. 7.22, as, as Moses has turned the Nile to blood, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. And, and there again, it's that word uh, for, for being strong. Pharaoh's heart uh, was strong, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then 8.15, we see this again. This is in the, in the second plague as, as the frogs come upon the land. Pharaoh saw that there was a respite. He hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Uh, we, we see it next in 8.19. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I'm not going to go through all of these. But I will, I will tell you that there are 16 instances of these statements where the Lord either hardens Pharaoh's heart or Pharaoh's heart is strong or his heart is, is made heavy. Nine times it's the, his heart was made strong, once it's literally hardened, and then six times the hardening is described with Pharaoh's, with this language of his heart being heavy. And in response to these... I want to say again that Pharaoh is already a rebel. Pharaoh was already a rebel before any of this started. And the truth about all of us human beings is that once Adam has, has committed his transgression in the garden, and once we come to a place where we know what we, do, we are doing, we are all by nature in Adam and then actively by our own choices, we are all rebels. In other words, we are all just like Pharaoh. And so any one of us, God could justly say, I'm going to confirm them in their resolve. I'm going to make them strong in their commitment to pursue something other than my commandments, than my, my teaching, my exhortation. Uh, the, Lord, the Lord could do that. He does that to Pharaoh. And Paul, in the book of Romans, he, he responds to potential objections to God doing this kind of thing in Romans chapter 3 because really what God is doing is he's hardening Pharaoh so that he can multiply his signs of wonders, signs and wonders. You know, if, if he crushes Pharaoh after the first plague... He can't go on and do the other nine. And so he, he hardens Pharaoh, he confirms Pharaoh in his purposes, and then he keeps visiting these wonders to make known his glory against Pharaoh. And, and Paul says, in, in Romans 3, 5, he says, If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And, and Paul is 
clearly rejecting this conclusions. He says, I speak in a human way. Don't, don't think that I want to argue that. Then he says in verse 5, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? And so here's, here's point number one in response to God's hardening of Pharaoh. This does not make God unrighteous. God is righteous because God does not owe mercy or kindness to any rebel. Any rebel deserves only justice and punishment from the righteous one. So what God does to Pharaoh, and, and if God uses unrighteousness to highlight his righteousness, this does not make God unrighteous. The second objection that Paul raises in Romans 3, 7, he says, if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If we put this in Pharaoh's context, we could say, well, if the Lord is just using Pharaoh to show his glory, why is Pharaoh condemned as a sinner? And, and look at Paul's answer here. He's got one more question to raise in verse 8. Why not do evil that good may come? That's the third objection. And then he says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, and then concludes their condemnation is just. So, so objection number two, um, does this absolve me of responsibility? Why am I still being condemned as a, as a, as a sinner? And, and the answer to that objection is, if you think that way, your condemnation is just. So the hardening of Pharaoh does not make God unrighteous. It does not absolve Pharaoh of responsibility or anyone else. And then thirdly, why not do evil that good may come? And again, Paul says, those who take that line, their condemnation is just. So you should not draw the false conclusion that if, if my lie highlights the truthfulness of God, well, then I should do evil that good may come. No, you shouldn't. No, you shouldn't. And you know that you shouldn't. And you know that you're self-condemned if you pursue that line. So what God does with Pharaoh does not make God unrighteous. It does not absolve Pharaoh of responsibility. And it does not mean that anyone should do evil that good may come. Well, what does it mean? And if you, if you want to turn to Romans 9, I think that Paul gets at the real heart of this when he, when he says in Romans 9, 15, quoting Exodus 33, 19, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then Paul concludes, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Ultimately, those who experience God's mercy don't experience God's mercy because of their choice, their will, or because of their effort, human exertion. Those who experience God's mercy experience it because God chose to be merciful to them. And this is why throughout the Bible, those who, who come to realize this, they will say, salvation belongs to the Lord. And, and this is what is so profoundly humbling about the Christian faith. This is why Christians should be the most humble people on the planet. Because we know that we chose ourselves right into hell. And we know that no effort that we could ever have exerted ever would have earned God's favor. If we experience God's favor, it is the mere pleasure and mercy of God. Because he says, 
I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then uh, Paul quotes um, Exodus 9, which we're uh, about to look at in Romans 9, 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then Paul concludes, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so in response to the hardening of Pharaoh in this narrative of the ten plagues, here's, here's the application that I hope and pray you will take away from this text. Fear God. Fear God. In whose hand is the power of life and death? Who alone reserves to himself the right to show mercy to whom he pleases? Job 28, 28 really encapsulates this. This, is, this statement in Job 28, 28, it's like the central statement in the whole book of Job. It reaches all the way back to Job 1, 8, where Job was described as a righteous man who feared God and turned away from evil. And it anticipates the end of the book, Job 42, 7, when the Lord is going to affirm of Job that, that he spoke what was right about him. Job 28, 28, he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. You know, the evidence that we have understood Exodus 7 through 11 will be if we fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That will be the evidence that you've come to experience the living God of the Bible. Fear God. Because what the Lord is doing in these plagues is making himself known. Now, I, 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 we're not going to take the time to read through the entirety of uh, each of these narratives of the plagues. But what I want to do is, is point to some things that I hope will give you handles for the plague narratives. So, so these nine plagues are broken into three sets of three. Three times three is nine. And, and uh, th these, the, the arrangement here is, is brilliant. It's like everything else that Moses does. It's highly structured. It's purposefully arranged. And, and that increases our ability to understand what's going on. So in the first of these plagues, each time, Moses is sent to encounter Pharaoh in the morning at water. So if you look with me at the first one in Exodus 7, 14, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile. So that's the first in our set of three. Our second set of three will begin with the fourth one. And so if you look at chapter 8, verse 20, the fourth plague flies. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And then you have in your second set, you have your first, second, and third. And then in your third set, this would bring you to the seventh in Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, Exodus 9, 13, and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord. So all three of those, the first in the sets of three, they all three happen in the morning. The first two happen at water. 
also, I think this is very significant, the first in the sets of three, they all state the purpose of what it is exactly that God is trying to achieve. So if you look at chapter 7, verse 17, thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. And we can think again of, of Moses going in before Pharaoh and saying, Thus says Yahweh. And Pharaoh responding, Who is Yahweh? And as the Lord sends Moses to turn the river of the Nile to blood, the Lord says, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. And then if you look at chapter 8, verse 20, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning. And then our purpose statement comes in verses 22 and 23. This is really interesting. Uh, the Lord says through Moses, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen. And so in this third set of three, the Lord begins to talk about how he's going to protect Israel from the plagues that are going to fall. He says, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies may be there, that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. And then in verse 23, the ESV renders this, thus I will put a division. But if you're looking at an ESV as I am, you'll notice there's a footnote on the word division. And it, in the lower margin, it tells you that the Septuagint and Vulgate read division. The Hebrew has set redemption. So the Lord says, I will set redemption between my people and your people. This is what God is doing in the plagues. He is, he is making a distinction between those he is going to save and those who are going to be judged and destroyed. And then finally, in the third set, this is the longest purpose statement in Exodus chapter 9, verse 14. The Lord explains through Moses to Pharaoh, this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And then verse 17, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So the Lord is countering Pharaoh's self-exaltation by bringing him to his knees. And it's going to work. His name is going to be proclaimed in all the earth to the extent that when the people of Israel come up out of Egypt 40 years later and they get to the land of Jericho, the town of Jericho, there is a prostitute in the wall who has heard the whole story named Rahab. And she's going, to she's going to say to them, we heard what your God did to Egypt. We heard all about those plagues and the Red Sea. We heard the whole story. So the Lord accomplishes his purpose. I mean, Rahab, you know, she's not receiving intelligence briefings in the morning. But the story has reached her. It's come all the way to her. So in the first of these sets of three, uh, the Lord sends Moses to Pharaoh in the morning, in the first two at the water, in all three of the first three, he states his purpose. In the second of, of these plagues, each time Moses is told to go in to Pharaoh, and it seems 
that the idea is that perhaps Pharaoh is in his palace and Moses enters the palace to address him there. So if you look with me at 8, two, eight sorry, 8, 1, then the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord. And then uh, the fifth plague, the second in the second set of three, in chapter 9, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord. And then the second in the third uh, set is uh, chapter 10, verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. The third in each set of three gets no announcement. So in these first two, in each set of three, Moses is sent to Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh exactly what's happening, and in the first one, each time, why it's happening. The third time, Moses gets no announcement. So if you look at the third plague, uh, Exodus chapter 8, verse 16, then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth. So no warning to Pharaoh, the plague is initiated. And then chapter 9, verse 8, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air. So they're going to do this and it's going to initiate the plague. And then the ninth plague of darkness, chapter 10, verse 21, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses did so. And again, no, no announcement to Pharaoh that these things are happening. How, how should we respond to these plagues, the turning of the Nile to blood, the, the plague of frogs and gnats and flies and the death of the livestock and the boils on people and the hail that falls and kills all the green things and then the locusts that come and eat everything that's left and then the darkness that can be felt. The way that we want to respond is to know God. And interestingly... Um, Pharaoh, it's as though Pharaoh begins to respond the right way, but the Lord hardens him, and, and he doesn't carry through. What I have in mind is, if you look with me at chapter 8, verse 27, Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. And we might say, this time? What about the command of the midwives? What about those baby boys in the Nile River, this time you have sinned. This time I have sinned. And then it's interesting, the ESV renders this, the Lord is in the right. You could, you could translate this, Yahweh is the righteous one. And then when he says, and I and my people are in the wrong, you could translate that, I and my people are the wicked ones. Yahweh's the righteous one, we're the wicked ones. That's the right response to these displays of God's power. And, and we who would be right with God, we must persist in responding that way. As, as, as it turns out, um, Pharaoh does not continue in this. Look at, uh, down at verse 34 in chapter 9. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. Maybe you've Maybe you've had an experience where you've come to know there has to be a God. There has to be a God. And you begin to think about your life and you realize there's a God and he's righteous and I am severely wicked and I am so guilty 
before him. But then things begin to get better. Maybe you come through the sickness, or maybe your body healed, or maybe you got a raise at work, and, and you begin to think, oh, I can, I can push that aside. I don't have to deal with that. I can go on about my life. I want to say to you, go back. Go back to that sense of God's righteousness. And I want to particularly urge you not to let, I think, the form of hardening that is on offer in our culture take root in your heart. Here, here I think, is the form of hardening that is particularly appealing in our culture. Well, these absolute truths, you know, these, these dogmatic uh, claims about objective reality. I mean, nobody really knows these, these things. I mean, th- this, this line of thinking has deep roots in postmodern philosophy. And you don't have to read postmodern philosophy to feel uh, maybe, maybe there really isn't this right and wrong thing about sexual morality or about uh, telling the truth when we speak or, or, or whatever the case may be. It's in the air of our, our culture. All these lines are being blurred. All these categories are being confused so that if you, if you are mainly discipled by Facebook or Twitter or the television, you're not going to know what right and wrong are. You're going to think, well, you know, they're not harming anyone. Maybe, maybe it's okay for them to do this. I mean, everybody seems to think it's okay. And, and, and there will be no sense of good and evil, and there will be no sense of moral and immoral. And what's happening is your heart is being hardened in the particular way that people are hardened in this culture at this time in this place. You need to resist that. And, and the evidence... I think, that, that Paul wants Christians to resist that is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me. It's as though Paul is describing our society in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And he's about to describe what he expects for times of difficulty. And before I read through this list, just think about... Think about the commercials that maybe you saw as you watched football games. Or think about things that you've read over the last week or two that would indicate that nobody should ever indicate that another adult's sexual choices that don't uh, involve a child, maybe, uh, nobody should ever indicate that that's immoral, what they've chosen to do with their lives. Nobody should ever condemn anyone. Nobody should ever say anything. In fact, maybe it would even be good to stay away from a word like should. You, you think about the, the, this context in which we live, and then listen to what Paul says. 2 Timothy 3.2. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I mean, we could say United States of America, 2022, January 2nd, that's our culture right there. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness. And and you can just think of all the righteous indignation and, and all of the moral preening that we see. 
on bumper stickers, on yard signs, in the ways that people talk to one another. They have an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And then Paul says, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And then Paul compares these people that he anticipates arising in the last days to Janus and Jambres in verse 8, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Uh, Janus and Jambres, um, traditionally, these are guys that have been identified as magicians of Egypt. Magicians of Egypt who are opposing Moses, doing the same signs and wonders that Moses is doing, trying to keep Pharaoh from acknowledging the living God. And Paul is saying, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, look, Moses had the magicians of Egypt who, was, who were hardening Pharaoh and opposing everything. They, they were offering another philosophical explanation to account for what Moses was showing as the work of the living God. And Paul is saying, so also in your day, today, in the last times, there are going to be people who have another philosophical explanation to account for what's going on in the world. And in the same way that Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, these people are going to oppose the gospel. Paul continues, he describes these, these guys as men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. And you go back through that, that list of things, and we could say, well, it, it, they totally transgress all the Ten Commandments. They refuse to worship the living God, and they particularly engage and indulge in sexual immorality. And, and if, you, if you put those lenses on and then look at our culture, that's what we've got. That's what we've got. Idolatry, sexual immorality, redefinition of what's righteous when it comes to sexual conduct, and then, and then an appearance of godliness directed at anyone who objects to their reconfiguration of how to view the world, this righteous indignation with which they respond. So how do we overcome this? Well... Let me draw your attention to what God says again and again as to to what he's after in the plagues. Let's start with chapter 6, verse 29. The Lord said to Moses, I am Yahweh. Chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Chapter 7, verse Verse 17, thus says Yahweh, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. And then you think about what he's doing. He's controlling the forces of nature by turning the Nile to blood, by bringing the the frogs and the gnats and the flies, and and by plaguing the livestock and inflicting boils on people, and and then visiting hail and fire on the land. He's, He's showing that he is the one who is in control of the heavens above and on the earth beneath because he is the world's maker. So the identity of the Lord is where we root our claims about objective truth. 
I mean, the first step in this, this postmodern advance toward hardening is letting go of objective truth claims. And the, the bulwark for us against that is the Lord saying repeatedly, so that, look at, at chapter 8, verse 10, so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. And then the magicians, the magicians are named in the first three plagues and then they sort of drop off the scene. But they respond in 819, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. God is doing this, Pharaoh. You know, the first two plagues, uh, Moses turns the Nile to blood and they do some of the same thing. They can't, they can't undo it. They can't turn the blood into water. They can't fix the situation, but they can make it worse. And then they do the same thing again. Moses brings the frogs, and the magicians make some frogs too. Well, that doesn't help anything, so it seems at that point it's like they give up. They're like, okay, we're not going to make it worse anymore. And then they acknowledge, this is the finger of God. It's remarkable. It's working. It's what God's out to accomplish of making himself known. Chapter 8, verse 22, near the end of the verse, that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. So we want to respond to this by knowing God. And I would draw your attention to Psalm 78, where Asaph reflects on these realities, the ten plagues, and he introduces, before he starts going through them, he introduces the plagues by saying in Psalm 78, verse 41, They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. And then he goes through the plagues. And then he concludes that discussion of the plagues. Look down at verse 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God. So we want to respond to the plagues by fearing God. And by knowing God. And by fearing him so that we don't test him. And not forgetting the day of redemption. So essentially what I'm saying here is we want to walk with God. And that brings me to the final point here. Where the Lord again and again states why it is that he wants the people to be let go by Pharaoh. So this, he had already articulated this back in chapter 3, verse 12. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 4.23, I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And then chapter 7, verse 15, you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me. In the wilderness. Again and again, 8 1. Let my people go that they may serve me. If this sounds familiar, this idea of serving God, this term for service is the same term used to describe God put him, putting Adam in the garden to work the garden. God put Adam in the garden to serve God, and now God is bringing Israel out of Egypt to serve him. And across the Old Testament, we're going to read about these servants of the Lord. Moses, the servant of the Lord. David, the servant of the Lord. And then, and then the anticipated servant who's described in Isaiah 52 and 53. And Paul, Paul urges us to recognize in Romans 6 
that we have been liberated from slavery to sin. Why? So that we can become slaves of righteousness. So that, so that whereas we formerly served sin, we can now give ourselves to serving God. That's why we're liberated. And as you, as you think about what that looks like in the book of Exodus, what are they going to do when they come out of Egypt? Well, they're going to build the tabernacle. And God is going to take up residence among them. And it's interesting, sometimes as you go through here, serving God is slotted out for holding a feast to me in the wilderness. So as you worship God, you're serving him. And then other times, serving God is into that slot is put something like offering sacrifice to him. And as I reflected on that, I, I couldn't help but think of what Paul calls us to in Romans 12. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is what we're called to. We're called to cultivate the worship of the living God and then to live in such a way that it looks like what we're doing in our lives. Whether, whether you're sitting at your computer working away or doing the dishes for your mother or working on your homework or taking care of you. whatever it is that you're doing in every corner of your life, this is service to the living God. Because, because you are a living sacrifice, offering yourself up as a servant of righteousness, as a servant of God. We, we will only live that way if we fear God. Because, because there are, as you know, there are so many temptations. And the antidote to the temptation is the fear of God. When, 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 the siren, when we hear the siren song and we think to ourselves, oh, that might be nice. We want the next thought to be, we should pray for the next thought to be, there are awful plagues that are going to be visited in Revelation 16, as we read earlier, in fulfillment of the plagues on Egypt. And those plagues are going to fall on the people that refuse to repent. And so because I fear God, I'm going to resist this temptation. We want to fear God, and fearing God it's, it's remarkable how this, how this works, but fearing God opens up the path to knowing God. Psalm 25, 14, um, the friendship of the Lord. You could translate the word friendship there as, as uh, the counsel or even intimacy. Intimacy with the Lord is for those who fear him. It's amazing how this works. The fear of God leads to the knowledge of God. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and to them he makes known his covenant. And, and this, this idea of serving God flows right out of living in covenant with God. We want to fear God, we want to know God, and we want to serve him in the context of the new covenant that Christ has made for us. Let's pray together. Father, we have only you to thank for your mercy. You could so easily have hardened each one of us. You could so easily have put on a perfect display of righteous vindication of the holiness of your great name. But out of your own free goodness, out of your heart of steadfast love, you have chosen 
to set your loving kindness and mercy on those whom you redeem. And Lord, we praise you for the good news that the Christ has been born and that he has lived a righteous life, that all the patterns of Israel's history have been fulfilled, the promises have come to pass, that Christ has been crucified to pay the penalty for sin, to make it so that those who turn from their sin, those who genuinely repent and trust in Christ will be saved. Lord, we thank you for for the good news that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we pray that you would help us to fear you, to know you, and to serve you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.